Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 23rd, 2014, and my guest is Luigi Zingales, the Robert C. McCormick Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. He's the author of a very provocative and utterly fascinating piece, Preventing Economists' Capture, that appeared as a chapter in a book on regulatory capture published last year. And his essay is the subject of today's episode. Luigi, welcome back to EconTalk. My pleasure. I'd love to be back. Now, preventing economist capture is not about kidnapping uh, or, or abduction. Your piece is about – thank you. Your piece is about the biases that economists bring to their research and their policy positions. I want to start, as you do in the paper, with the idea of regulatory capture in general and how economists view the incentives facing regulators. Yes, I think it's very important to explain to ordinary people that when economists talk about regulatory capture, i.e. the fact that uh, the regulators tend to design regulation more in favor of the industry that they regulate than in favor of the public that uh, they uh, they are supposed to um, protect, uh, they don't mean, they don't imply that regulators are corrupt or they lack integrity. Uh, certainly, around the world, there are examples of uh, corrupt regulators. But uh, I think in the United States, by and large, that's not the case. And uh, on the one hand, this is great news. On the other hand, this makes it more difficult to uh, both understand and uh, uh, fight the kind of capture that economists talk about. So um, let me try to explain uh, what uh, they mean. They mean that uh, when uh, you do your job, you tend to be affected inevitably, almost psychologically, by uh, a, the, the people who provide you the information, uh, the people who follow you, um, and also, in addition to that, the people who can give you a job in the future. But even without going to the third element, that maybe is the more uh, the most creepy one, if you want, let's start with the first two that seems to be very benign, but they're quite important. Um, as a regulator, I need uh, uh, information about the industry. I need to know what the problems are. And the best source for this data are exactly the people I regulate. So if I am too tough with the regulated, I end up not receiving the very information that is necessary for my business. Uh, the second aspect is uh, very few of us, ordinary people, follow what happens day in, day, days in and days out in, in uh, uh, regulation. So uh, take the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, if I need to regulate some emission, most people don't pay attention of the exact level of emission. And short of a, ca- a catastrophe, uh, this decision will not be revealed and discussed by ordinary uh, citizens. 
On the other hand, uh, the industry that is regulated uh, will pay a great deal of attention to all the little details because uh, its profitability will depend massively by uh, these regulatory decisions. And so the, the, um, the regulator will naturally pay more attention because the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And if I am a regulator and I am in doubt about what is the exact sort of uh, threshold for emission or whatever number you want to uh, in, in input in a regulation, um, there is always some uncertainty of what is the precise number. And what I do know is if I make a mistake in one direction, I'm immediately exposed and ridiculed by the industry. If I make a mistake in the other direction, chances are that nobody will find out. So naturally, even without being a cynical bastard, I will inevitably tend to make mistakes only in one direction. And notice I've mentioned all these things without even entering what, in, at least in the regulatory capture uh, discussion, is probably the most important aspect, which is my career incentives. If I'm a regulator, uh, generally I don't get uh, a lot of money uh, doing the job I, I do. The moment I step down as a regulator and I go to work for the industry, I make much more money. And so it's really tempted for me not to uh, burn my bridges with the industry because if I'm considered the um, uh, worst guy for the industry, chances are that when I step down, I would not receive a job. So all these facts together uh, make uh, unbiased regulation very difficult to take place, even in the complete absence of any corruption, at least in the form in which traditional, in which we mean traditional corruption. So uh, that's a well-discussed phenomenon among in the economic literature, the fact that Regulators get co-opted, get captured, get have incentives to not do their job. And this is part of a larger literature in public choice that politicians and regulators don't necessarily maybe not even come close to serving the public interest or whatever, whatever that is, uh, a phrase I don't like because it masks the complexity of our preferences. But put that to the side. Uh, so this is a common argument put forward by economists. You have the startling claim in your paper – that maybe economists face the same incentives that regulators do, and maybe we're not so straightforward and honest. So explain why your analysis, why economists might be subject to some of these uh, pressures. So I basically try to apply the same rule that we apply to regulators to ourselves. And so there is no doubt that uh, most regulators are honest people that try to do the greater good. And in spite of that, we economists think that they might fall prey of the industry they regulate for the reasons I just explained. So I start from the same premise. And most of the, my colleagues and myself are people that are really dedicated to research, the public good, uh, really honest and, and decent people. Um, but we might be captured by, in the same way, subtle ways in which regulators are captured. So I pointed out three ways in which sort of uh, regulators could be captured. The first one is uh, uh, information. And uh, this is uh, a bit the same thing for economists. 
A late colleague of mine used to say that uh, if I am an entomologist, I don't have to socialize with uh, bugs. Um, if I'm a business professor, why should I socialize with business people? Uh, and uh, this reflects the attitude of um, an older generation of academics that was quite far from uh, the business world. Um, today, things are different. And, uh, and I actually claim that even entomologists, if they could socialize with bugs, they will happily do it because yeah. they get more insight about how bugs work and so on and so forth. Um, so the point I'm making here is that is intrinsic to our profession, especially for people uh, do business economics and finance, to interact with to socialize people. to socialize with the bugs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and so we get um, sort of uh, some rub off from the bugs. I think we when you socialize with somebody, it's natural that you tend to uh, take their. Uh, view of the world and to be more sympathetic and 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 so on and so forth. So but you raise I think the, that uh, you raise the more I think the more insightful point in your paper is that you raise the question you understand why we might socialize with the business people. Why do they socialize with us? I think that uh, they find it uh, useful to be able to uh, shape our views. Uh, I think that uh, especially shrewd business people know how important is the reputation of what they do? And uh, communication is now an important part of every business. And uh, communication with the academic world uh, is an important part of it. And so they like to sponsor our conference, to uh, come to our meetings and uh, to say things. And I always noticed that it was interesting because uh, there is this uh, Western Finance Association and uh, uh, the NYSC, the New York Stock Exchange, start, started to sponsor a breakfast at the Western Finance Association immediately after the 1987 crash. And uh, NASDAQ started to sponsor uh, another breakfast at the association immediately after the uh, scandal about uh, alleged collusion on quotes on NASDAQ. So... It's interesting that uh, these things don't happen just by accident. Uh, business people uh, see the value of influencing academia and they play their game. And, and you cannot blame them to play the game. That's part of what uh, uh, profit maximization is about. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, banks don't do the same. So I think that we have to be careful. We have to be uh, more aware than entomologists about that risk because we are more exposed to that risk. Yeah, I um, I, I think you're right about those breakfasts. I don't think they were just worrying about whether economists were hungry. I think it was probably (laughs) just a little bit maybe self-interested. I can't help but think of Adam Smith's uh, beautiful quote uh, from The Theory of Moral Sentiments uh, when I hear about you applying this model of capture to economists. Here's what Smith said. He is a bold surgeon, they say, whose hand does not tremble. When he performs an operation upon his own person, and he is often equally bold, who does not hesitate to pull off the mysterious veil of self-delusion, which covers from his view the deformities of his own conduct. So you're suggesting, end of quote, so you're suggesting that uh, we have some of the same deformities that the regulators have. And before you make the case, I want to, um, I just want to take two incredible, beautiful examples you uh, using the book of regulatory capture outside of economics. 
side of the economics profession. Uh, the first is nuclear power in France, a speculation I had never heard before. Talk about your insight uh, or someone's insight into why France has so much nuclear power. Oh, it's very simple. If I am an engineer, especially a nuclear engineer, um, there are two things. One is I probably started this profession is because I love this particular uh, uh, field. And so I'm in love with all the creation of the field, including nuclear power. The second, which is more like in the line of uh, standard economic reasoning, once I became an expert in nuclear power, the value of my human capital is highly dependent on the success of the nuclear power industry. So it's very uh, unlikely that uh, as a nuclear power expert, I'm going to start advocating against nuclear power. And uh, even without uh, thinking that I am literally bought off by the industry or people pay me to say, uh, to, to lie, I tend to view the world in a slightly different way. And uh, it's not a coincidence, at least in my view, that uh, the country with the largest fraction of uh, nuclear power is France, a country run by engineers, uh, in the sense that uh, the way to become part of the French elite is to go to uh, the Ecole Polytechnique, uh, and study engineering. And only the very top of the Ecole Polytechnique make into the French civil servants and, uh, uh, and into the administration. So I, I think that uh, if you have a, a country that is run by engineers, you are more likely to have a lock of nu- nuclear plants. And uh, if you are a country run by people with a degree in finance, you're going to think that uh, every finance creation is great. So I, that that's a nice segue into the second example, which I just loved. You said, I don't know if it's true, you don't have a source, but uh, you, I assume you heard it from a, a horse's mouth. Uh, you say, a revealing anecdote comes from a Bush Treasury official who noted that in the heat of the financial crisis, every time there was a phone call from Manhattan's 212 area code, the message was the same. Buy the toxic assets such uniformity of advice makes it difficult for even the most intelligent or well-meaning policy policymakers not to be influenced. Uh, so that's an example, again, where just the flow of information that came into the policymakers' world was overwhelmingly pushed in one direction. Yes, I think that, uh, uh, first of all, if you are Paulson, you come from uh, Goldman and uh, you face a problem, you're likely to ask your friends, your trusted friends for a suggestion. And uh, your tr- if your trusted friends are all in finance and they all bought a lot of uh, uh, bad mortgages, your trusted friends will probably push in one direction. And I think this is normal. I'm not saying that this is terrible. What is terrible is when there is not variety. Um, one of my favorite sentences is uh, the one that uh, the late Prime Minister of France, Georges Clemenceau, once said, is that the war is too serious a matter to let the generals run it. And um, this is a... It's a deep truth. (laughs) Yeah, this is in some sense against specialization, but it is true that when you are overly specialized, you tend to lose, uh, miss the forest from the tree. And I think that uh, if an administration is too much full of... uh, 
generals. They're going to do sort of a terrible war. If they are sort of uh, too full of uh, finance people, they tend to uh, come out with uh, measures that are too much pro-finance. I think that uh, is uh, just the nature of the beast. So let's talk about economists. They're not uh, regulating in, in the literal way the decisions made by industry. Uh, so in what sense can economists be captured? What's the analogy between the regulatory capture example and what we do uh, in our day-to-day research and policy uh, advocacy? So first of all, let's start with uh, data. Nowadays, uh, it's very um, sexy and trendy to either use uh, proprietary data for certain analysis or to do field study um, about a certain topic. Now, the best researchers uh, guarantee themselves against uh, um, being prevented from publishing the result, the research they do. Still, there is a very subtle quid pro quo uh, about uh, what I'm doing. So if I partner with some uh, um, payday loan uh, with one payday loan firms to do some field experiments. I probably don't want to come up with a result to say that payday loan are... Exploit uh, poor people. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, so it's not that I am uh, uh, sort of prevented from doing that. Like the regulator is not prevented to really go after the industry. But the incentives are such that I probably will uh, um, sort of fine-tune and try not to look at uh, the worst things and look at the things I can look at. Um, and so inevitably, the research is going to be uh, a bit biased. Now, we know every research is a bit biased. I don't think that anybody owes the truth. But in general, we come to the conclusion that if we sum across research, those individual biases cancel out, and as a result, the average is pretty accurate. Uh, What I'm saying is because the data in this case are controlled by people with a particular interest, even if you take the integral of all this research, the overall picture tend not to be unbiased. And, And again, it's not that any single piece is terrible, but when you analyze the overall research agenda or research result, you want to understand that this bias exists and try to undo it. And all too often, we tend to ignore that. So that's one example. That's where people are beholden to the industry for data or analysis. And of course, you know, if there are people who the industry trusts and because they know how their, their research is going to come out. And so they're happy to give it to them, even when those strings attached, because they know that person might even have a track record. So that's and you talk about that. So that's one. That's one example. What are, what are some of the others? Oh, uh, another one is simply uh, the su- success of your research. Uh, the success is not only given by how many uh, other colleagues cite you, but indirectly also how popular your research becomes. Because if my research is portrayed in uh, every newspaper, eventually, this is going to trickle down on more citations, and I will become more important in my field as a result of that. So I tend to have an incentive, especially early on in my career, to establish myself to come up with provocative statements uh, that tend to be 
sort of uh, more bias in favor of business. Uh, why? Because the natural audiences, the one that listen to me, uh, are more business oriented. So um, like every secretary of labor tend to be more biased in favor of labor, every sort of uh, finance professor tend to be more biased in favor of finance and against labor. It's the na nature of the audience. Um, and again, it's not so terrible that, uh, but unless we don't recognize that and try to undo that uh, at the aggregate level. And then two other examples, you have uh, editors. Talk about the publishing product. For those people who aren't used to the uh, ugly kitchen of, um, of um, economic and, and scholarly research uh, publication, we've talked a little bit about it on Econ Talk in the past, but uh, give us an idea of how the actual process works. You're an assistant professor, example you talk about in the, in the essay. You're an assistant professor and you send – what happens to you when you write a paper? Uh, yeah, let, let me uh, start with, with this for your general audience that the life of a professor is great except when you have to go through the process of uh, uh, submitting and receiving insults from your referees and uh, trying to, to convince them that you have produced the best piece of work since uh, sliced bread and so on and so forth. And uh, this process uh, is not the same across different fields. In particular, in economics, there are two uh, features that are quite important for what I want to say. The first one is that uh, it takes a long time to uh, get a paper published. So you submit a paper, and uh, if you're lucky, you re receive a response in four, five, six months. Then, of course, you have to revise it, and then you resubmit, and uh, very often you have two or three of these rounds. So uh, from the moment you have a paper that you consider good enough to be submitted to the moment you have a paper accepted, let alone published, but accepted is good enough for us, uh, easily two or two and a half years go by. And uh, the tenure clock today in many uh, academic departments is six or seven years. So it is really critical for you to be fast and, and have this uh, uh, papers published. Now, what is interesting is you cannot uh, submit two paper, uh, the same paper to two different journals. Um, legal scholars do that all the time, is, is sort of accepted. In economics, this is a, a no-no. In the, the way in which you want to be expelled from the profession is to do that. Yeah. And uh, so why do I think that's important? Uh, so first of all, it is funny that economists were so in favor of competition they don't use competition in this particular yeah. case. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, the second aspect is, suppose I, I am a young assistant professor, I submitted my paper, I got the first revision we submit, then I got my second revision we submit. So I'm toward the end. This is an important journal. Uh, publishing in this journal may make the difference between being promoted in a top university or having to look for a job and go down the pecking order of the academic department. Now, suppose the editor asked me to sort of uh, omit a certain part of my paper because he thinks it's not interesting. Of course, the, the editor will never say, I don't want this because uh, this is bad for my business. But uh, we say, I want you to omit this part because it's interesting or it's not well documented. 
oh, I would like you to spin the article in this particular way. And, you know, very often the articles are not read for what is in it, but for the way they're, they're sort of presented. I think it takes really a hero to resist this pressure, especially when you don't think that this is going to change dramatically the paper. And again, it doesn't change dramatically a paper, but if you can exert this pressure on a systematic basis, this might change a lot of outcomes. So there are a so, handful of editors who are in this position, have the opportunity to push or change a little bit or or just reject uh, an article by sending it to the referees that the editor knows won't like them. That's a whole other issue. Won't like the paper. But why would an editor care? W- what's in it for the editor? First of all, uh, people tend to assume over the years a position, which is in part is the result of their studies, and there's nothing bad about it. We all have sort of our view of the world, and uh, ideally these views of the world are the result of uh, what we learn over the course of our sort of uh, life. But uh, they're also influenced by what they do. So uh, if uh, they are expert witnesses uh, in antitrust cases where they mostly take the side uh, against the DOJ, uh, then they are more likely to sort of uh, see as negative a paper that will point out the um, benefit of antitrust or the cost of uh, excessive market concentration. And again, I'm not saying that they do it uh, on purpose because they get paid for it. Uh, It's more subtle is uh, we all have our biases that are driven by a lot of things. And one of the biases might be this one. And as I said before, if we are in a large uh, there, there are a lot of uh, important publications and the biases go all sort of ways. When we take the average, they cancel out. But the moment the prestigious journals are few and uh, the editors are few and they tend to be sort of uh, um, more likely hired on one side rather than the other of an uh, antitrust case, then we potentially have a problem. And this is also an issue you mentioned about sitting on corporate boards. Do you think a lot of editors sit on corporate boards in economics? Um, not a lot, but some. I, I, for full disclosure, I want to be very clear. I am a business uh, school professor. I sit on a board, and occasionally I do expert witness. So I'm not trying to sort of uh, uh, demonize totally, yeah, everybody. And I, w- I would so, just point out, I would just point out that on your on your webpage, you have a disclosure of potential conflicts of interest where you list. As far as I know, yes, accurately. Absolutely. I don't know, but you list some of your some of the places. Actually, I need to update it. It's okay. a bit old. Okay, I'm but lazy, still, but, uh, <laughs> I've never seen I've never seen anyone do that before in economics. It happens in other fields, so that's very impressive. I like that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that this is important, and uh, I think that uh, the the problem is first of all is not to be aware, but second, uh, again, if you are uh, in, on a board, you tend to view the world more from a particular perspective. And um, if you start saying that CEOs are overpaid, um, I think you're less likely to join a board. You think so? And uh, <laughs> less likely to uh, remain on a board. So, so, um, so let's talk about that issue. The empirical evidence in this paper is on CEO compensation. Uh, we just had uh, Thomas Piketty on, on Econ Talk recently, and he, he is of the of the view that uh, corporate governance is totally messed up. Uh, the board is 
uh, of for the CEO is just a bunch of cronies and friends who rubber stamp raises and they can get uh, they can push the board around. An alternative view, and that view is widely held by many many economists. But there's an alternative view, which is no, it's much more competitive than you think. CEO salaries are earned in, in a competitive marketplace, more or less. Of course, there's some exceptions, but in general, CEOs earn what they what they're paid. Uh, so, how did you go about studying whether uh, there's a bias in the views that people have? So, what I did this is not particularly deep, but what I did is is the following: um, the uh, initially on global markets at the University of Chicago uh, does a survey of economists on a number of topics, and for a while I was actually part of the economists that were surveyed. And uh, one of the questions at some point was asked was sort of whether they thought that uh, CEOs were paid above their marginal productivity. And uh, what is interesting is that these uh, people uh, uh, not only state their opinion, but they state their opinion with their name attached. So you can go on the website of the uh, IGM and see uh, exactly how they voted. So I simply took these votes and I correlated the um, sort of their opinion with whether they serve on the board or not. And uh, uh, I even took out my own name so that uh, the sample was not biased. And uh, what I clearly show is that you're much more likely to think that CEOs are paid above their marginal productivity um, if you don't sit on the board. Uh, if you sit on the board, you uh, don't think that way. And I don't know whether it's because people are selected in one way or another. So if I have a, a very negative view, I, I'm less likely to be invited or even I'm less likely to be to, to join a board. I, I suspect that uh, Thomas Piketty is not somebody that people will invite on a board. Um, actually, I will not invite him on a board, but for different reasons. But anyway, I don't think that it's very likely to be invited on sitting on a board. Maybe the, friend, uh, the board of a publicly owned firm in France, but not a, a business in, in America. Um, and is less likely to, to be even wanted if asked. So uh, that, that's one part. The other is that uh, once you are there, you tend to shape the view a bit. And this is uh, one of the, the things I find most puzzling is that one of the people answering the survey is a very famous economist who actually wrote uh, some models of a tournament where uh, naturally a CEO is paid more than, than his or her marginal productivity uh, because uh, uh, the uh, compensation is a price like... Uh, uh, if you win the uh, Riders' Cup or whatever, a big tournament, uh, you are paying more than your marginal productivity. Why? Because that price motivates everybody along the hierarchy, uh, which is perfectly efficient. Uh, in spite of the fact he's author of these pa papers, he says that he doesn't believe uh, uh, CEOs are paid above their marginal productivity, which I find a bit funny. Well, but we know why he wrote that. Not There's a non... There's a non-creepy way to understand that, which was the understood to be a political question, really, and not a literal question on economic theory. And he doesn't think there's anything wrong with how CEOs are paid. But put that to the side. No, no but wait, sorry, but wait a second. It, the purpose of that survey is to shed the economist's view into the real world. How economists think about that. So if you give a political view, then uh, why do we ask economists? 
Well, that's a separate question. But I guarantee you that many, many people on that survey uh, answer those questions, whether you want to call it strategically or they don't literally look at the wording of the question. They Just like every survey, just like people who answer surveys often have to interpret the words in a different way. But I take your point, and I think it's a fabulous point, uh, that, that there's a subtle, possibly a subtle bias going on there. Uh, how big are the magnitudes of that finding? They're, you found them to be statistically significant. Are the magnitudes, are they, are they large? Is it 99% of the people who are on board say it's a good idea, and 99% of the people who aren't on board think it's, they get paid more than their marginal product? No, I don't remember the exact magnitude. I don't think they are huge. So um, to be honest, it's very difficult to assess the the magnitude. But to be fair, it's also difficult to assess the magnitude of regulatory capture. So I'm not I'm not trying to say that is absolute. I'm just saying that we're not very different from regulators. And so if economists think that regulators are so terrible, that at least should look themselves in the mirror. So I want to look myself in the mirror. Um, and this summer I did a number of interviews in Silicon Valley with venture capitalists and with uh, entrepreneurs, and I I find them extremely impressive, and I like what they're doing to change the world. And I suspect that my interviews this summer of those people were a little bit uh, softer than they might have otherwise been because I have a certain respect and admiration for their skill. And you talk about this. You talk about how economists admire innovators and business leaders and that that might distort our judgment. How, how might that work? Uh, I think that uh, is, uh, is a fascination with the topic. And uh, again, I want to be clear here. I, I do admire greatly many venture capitalists. I think that uh, they, many of them create a lot of values. Uh, but I think as, as a researcher, we should be objective and realize that not all of them create value, first of all. And second, uh, when you are a marginal investor in this business, you probably are losing your money because the the top venture capitalists uh, reserve uh, uh, their investment for old clients. So if I'm a new client trying to enter into this world, I get left with uh, um, the leftovers. And uh, those are not particularly good. So I think that uh, we need to be very careful not to lose our um, objectivity. And, uh, and I think sometimes keeping some distance is important. And uh, one of the trends that concerns me is that, um, which is a good trend for other reasons, but concerns me from a capture point of view, is that it used to be the case that a lot of research in economics was archival research. So if you just look at uh, data and you don't interact with the bugs, then you're not sort of uh, captured by the bugs. The moment you start to do research that is more involved with the bugs, on the one hand is uh, better because it's more related to the real world. On the other hand, might be a bit too closely related (laughs) to the real world. So I think that this is the tension, intrinsic tension, especially for business school professors like me, because even if you might argue that doctors might be biased, but doctors don't have by design that they have to interact with businessmen. Uh, business professors by design need to sort of uh, study business and to some extent interact with the bags. 
So uh, it's much more difficult for them to re- retain their objectivity than it is for uh, any other kind of uh, uh, profession except maybe lawyers. So we're going to talk in a second about some of the ways that uh, you suggest we might fight against these biases. But before we do, I want to ask you a broad question. Um, you mentioned in there in your one of the issues that we did not talk about yet, but one of the issues you do talk about in the essay is that uh, donations to a university uh, and to various departments, not just in economics, by the way, you talk about economics and particularly business schools, which are always trying to raise money. Uh, but of course, other departments as well, particularly in the sciences, the medical school, there's an enormous amount of money flowing into universities and then an enormous amount of money flowing to academics for consulting, for boardships, for uh, being a public figure. There are many, many ways that economists make money today that compared to the past. And I, I think there's been a, a real transformation of university and academic life in many, many fields, not all fields. Uh, French literature is still pretty quiet, but in many, many <laughs> fields, in science, in, I like to mention Balzac whenever I can, in science and in economics and in business and in law, there's a lot more money flowing into this so-called nonprofit institution compared to, say, 50 years ago. You go back to, say, 1964, university life, academic life was about scholarship, and it was about teaching, and it was about research. Uh, to na- Now, to a large extent, there's a huge entrepreneurial element in both the university and in the scholar's life that was not there in many fields. And I think what you're identifying here is the downside of that. Yeah, and uh, as everything in economics, there is an upside and a downside. There's a cost and a benefits. And I think that uh, the money flowing into the a- academia is very useful in many dimensions and has improved the quality of research, etc. So I don't think the solution is to stop that, but I think we should be aware that it might uh, corrupt things in, in a very subtle way. In a sense, uh, fortunately, I was never in a situation in which uh, uh, there was any compromise of academic integrity. I never witnessed anybody in any committee or anything that say we should promote or not promote this person because the research uh, uh, has been uh, good for fundraising or has been bad for fundraising. However, things are a bit uh, more nuanced in the sense that uh, uh, your research, if your research is very popular uh, because it's been picked up by a lot of business newspapers, uh, you're probably more likely to be uh, tenure. And uh, if your research is very uh, criticized by uh, the business world, you have a harder time to uh, be promoted in a business school, not directly, but I think indirectly. Been, nobody will ever say you did not help us raise money, but you see your colleague who have research that they present in a lot of business circle and get a lot of accolades that are treated better. And uh, people uh, see that and learn. Of course, you, of course, if you write an anti-business paper, you might have a better chance of getting tenure in a different department. Because one of the things that's, that's I think, you underplay, although you allude to it, you don't ignore it, but one of the things you underplay is the role of ideology. So whether you're pro-business, anti-business, whether you're pawn implicitly or explicitly of business because you have a chance to make money there, uh, the bigger, equally important issue, I think, in, in economics, as Econ Talk listeners know, is that we all have an ideology, and 
seems to me that empirical work in economics is extraordinarily predictable. Uh, it, it's not the fact that the person sits on a board and writes a pro-business paper. It's that a person's a free marketer. They're going to find a free market result. And a person who's an interventionist is going to find an interventionist result. And that, that seems to me to be the most appalling, along with what you're identifying, the, 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 it all goes together, the, the, the real problem at the heart of our profession. I, I agree with that, but I think that uh, paradoxically, what is uh, most difficult to find is somebody who is pro-market but not pro-business. Because uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of people who have an anti-business ideology, and, uh, and they probably get hired and promoted in, in anti-business uh, groups and de- departments and so on and so forth. But if you are not an anti-business person, uh, then the temptation of uh, tilting uh, things a bit in the direction of uh, pro-business, even if this is not necessarily pro-market, is quite strong. And so uh, my view is the, uh, the area of uh, uh, conservative pro-market e- economists tend to be particularly distorted in this respect because uh, – ideologically is not on the other side of uh, uh, the world. And so if on the margin you uh, get a better life by not tilting very much your views, you're more likely to do it. Yeah, that's really depressing because, first of all, you're at the University of Chicago where Milton Friedman, the economics department, would constantly say, I'm pro-market, not pro-business. And he would also point out that most businesses are anti-market. They're pro-market for everyone else except their industry, which always has a special exception and and I think I think the issue here is is extremely important because especially in in your situation, if I may turn the the, the dial around, it's a finance problem in particular because most people are ex, who are so called free market are very uncomfortable criticizing uh, financial institutions uh, from a business school perspective, and I, I don't. Whether it's because I'm not in a business school, I, I don't know, or whether it's because I have a stronger ideology, but. When I say things like, well, you know, the financial s- sector tends to influence policy in a really corrupt and unhealthy way, people say to me, well, how can you be so critical of them? They're just doing what, what's in their natural self-interest. I'm saying, yeah, that's in their natural self-interest. That's what's wrong with it. We, 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 and, and, and the natural self-interest is to influence regulation, and we should be trying to stop it, not saying, well, what can you, can you blame them? And, and then to blame the politicians for, getting, for trying to, to, to stop that. I, that's bizarre. Yeah, I think it is bizarre, and I think it's, it's a leftover of a time where sort of every form of lobbying was a lobbying to get the the, the government off your back, which uh, as free marketeers were all in in uh, in favor. Now a lot of the lobbying has become how to get the government in your pocket, yeah. and I think that that is uh, the the big change that a lot of uh, people on the more conservative side of the political spectrum are not. Uh, I've not fully appreciated. And I think that that's the important thing to understand. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with that. So let's move to what some of your suggestions um, for what might improve the quality of, of economics, uh, um, uh, economists' honesty and, and integrity. Uh, one of them is shame. So what role might shame play? So I think that uh, there is a lot of uh, peer pressure in uh, uh, in the academic community. And so you're not going to write a paper that says outrageous things or not well-justified things 
because you are kept in check by your colleagues. Unfortunately, when we move outside of academic environment and we do expert witnesses or uh, other advice, uh, this is less the case. It's true that in expert witnesses, there is sort of a, a, another side that challenges you, but it's not always another academic, is in different environment. And most importantly, unless you go up to the final trial, you never get exposed in what you say. You can say some really so, bad things and no one will find out except the lawyers. Exactly. So one of my proposals, which is very simple, is to say, why don't we pass a, a, a regulation to say after two, three, five years, a reasonable amount of time, uh, the, every opinion given in a trial is fully disclosed. Then people, academics will be much more careful in what they say because they're embarrassed to be shamed by their colleagues. Now, the problem with this, I just want to give two two examples came to mind when when I read this. One is um, – uh, well, let me read your quote and then I'll um, give the other example. You, you say very nicely, you say, quote, an economist who always opposes government intervention but then makes an exception when the government bails out a certain industry where he has a direct interest could be easily exposed to the public ridicule. And I find it fascinating. I think about Alan Greenspan uh, when, when I read this. Uh, Alan Greenspan, for some reason, has a reputation as being a hardcore free market person. I think that reputation comes from the fact that he was friends with Ayn Rand, uh, who was <laughs> who was a hardcore free market person. But once Alan Greenspan was uh, chair of the Fed, he wasn't much of a free marketer. In particular, he always, as far as I can tell, and that's my bias, maybe there's some exceptions, but he often at least would support government regulation pro-subsidies uh, to, to the financial sector – and violate his so-called free market principles. So my favorite example is the 1995 Mexican rescue where he said, he testified in front of Congress, said, this is a terrible idea to guarantee uh, Mexican loans, but we have to do it. And uh, of course, that the reason, one reason we had to do it was because a lot of the people who profited from those loans and who would be uh, would lose a lot of money if Mexico couldn't continue to borrow was the financial sector, which Alan Greenspan was, of course, at the top of. Those are the people he chatted with, as you point out. Those are the people he interacted with. Those were those 212 phone calls that said a whole variety of things, but probably most of them involved being nice to the financial sector. So it's interesting that we did not ridicule him sufficiently at the time. Uh, I don't think he got much ridicule. In fact, he was probably honored for being pragmatic. And I think economists should have spoken out against that. Uh, the second example I want to give is from your book, is from the essay. You say it's a kind of a... I got a kick out of it for a variety of reasons. You say, for example, in years past, many famous economists wrote papers commissioned by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. In some of these papers, they were going as far as saying that, quote, this analysis shows that based on historical data, the probability of a shock as severe as embodied in the risk-based capital standard is substantially less than one in 500,000 and maybe smaller than one in three million. Still, you continue, the authors do not seem to have suffered any consequence of these wrong statements. In fact, one of these authors was promoted director of the Office of Management and Budget and later hired as vice chairman of global banking at Citigroup. And that was Mr. Orzog. One of the other authors, of course, was Joseph Stiglitz. Now, to defend them, and I don't trot this example out because when I, when I talk about the financial crisis, because I, you could defend them by saying, well, they weren't really talking about this kind of risk, the kind of risk that it ended up with. It, it was a different kind of risk. But the fact is they took money. They wrote a paper on behalf of Fannie and Freddie. 
they didn't get a lot of ridicule for it. And I, I suspect part, they did from you and me, uh, maybe, or people like us. But in general, part of the problem is who really wants to get Joseph Stiglitz mad at him? I, I don't mind so much. He's already been a guest on Econ Talk. So my, you know, if I can say something negative about him. And again, I'm, I'm trying to be fair to him. I don't think he, I don't think he wrote a horrible paper. I think he wrote a paper that helped Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I don't think he, he's totally wrong in his prediction, even though it, it turned out to be the case that it was very risky. Uh, but the point is, is that who wants to get them mad at you? Who wants to get Peter Orszag mad at you? He, these are influential people who, um, who can affect your career. So that the problem just gets pushed off a little bit, I think, even though the shaming thing has potential. Yeah, and uh, I, I do say in my essay that uh, shaming very important people might have some uh, uh, return. I, we see that, for example, CNN has an interesting program called Keeping Them Honest, where they check the facts and uh, see of the politicians see how, to what extent they'll they lie or misrepresent the facts in, in debates. But uh, I don't think that uh, economists are so uh, sexy that uh, they're worth uh, a CNN program or something like that. Um, I think that uh, this is one of those things that should be done by some NGOs because I think that uh, economists, uh, academic economists are very sensitive to their reputation. And I think that uh, uh, having some form of discipline uh, will uh, have an impact. Uh, what about changes uh, to the publication process? I found those very interesting. What would you recommend? I think that uh, I would like to see more competition uh, in the market because uh, uh, young assistant professor will be less captured by the uh, editor. And also I think it would be useful to have editors not play particular role while editors. I think that uh, there is a funny uh, attitude in uh, even in finance where we tend to be ashamed to pay our editors. I think that being an editor is an awful job and needs to be highly compensated if you do a good job. And as a result, should uh, compensate you enough that you have no time and no interest of doing anything else rather than teaching and and. Uh, and being an editor. And, uh, and I think that uh, this should continue even for a couple of years after uh, you step down as an editor. I think that uh, I'm very happy to pay more for that, uh, but uh, have this independence, I think, is important. Of course, we could do the same thing on the regulatory side. Um, we could pay regulators a lot more so that the revolving door was not as attractive to walk through and have them uh, turn to industry. Uh, I guess um, that's not Absolutely, happening. no, absolutely. But the funny thing is, I understand that in the public sector, money is more scarce, and uh, also the mentality is you don't want to pay people a lot. But the funny thing is that even in the finance profession, where a lot of professors say you should reward CEOs a lot, and et cetera, when it comes to rewarding a lot, the editor of the journal of finance, they... Seem to have objections. Are you an editor of the Journal of Finance, Luigi? No, never. Have I'm you been actually, one? Full disclosure. Do you no, hope I've to be one? one? Do you hope to be one? I, <laughs> I hope. I don't hope to be one. I am in this moment the president of the American Finance Association. So, uh, and I think that uh, currently we do pay our uh, editors, but in the past this was a battle because a lot of people were resisting it. So. Last, one of the things you talk about is awareness, which is uh, some might say is naive, but I, I do like it. I'm a big fan of awareness. So what's your argument there? I think that uh, 
is not a perfect solution, but I definitely is the first step in the right direction. Without that step, is uh, impossible to achieve uh, any result. And what I find it uh, uh, funny is that uh, even this step is so difficult to uh, to do. I had a lot of people uh, rejecting completely uh, out of uh, the, uh, totally my arguments saying that this don't apply to them. And to me, is uh, that's the best, so isn't it? Is that the best? <laughs> well, that's the that, make, that just proves the point. That, that's what's so beautiful about that. You know, I, I, I've heard that from guests on EconDog. I'm not going to name them, but you know, they say, uh, "Of course, I'm not. I'm not biased. I've, I, I separate my ideology from uh, from uh, from my research." And similarly, uh, Paul Krugman, who who, by the way, people ask me, when's he going to be a guest on EconDog? And when I, my answer is whenever he'd like. I've invited him before. He may not have received the emails. He's a busy man, but I'd love to have him on. But having said that, he, uh, he, in response to something I wrote once said, where I confessed that I had an ideology and maybe was biased, he said, he does not. He's only a truth seeker. And this is a man whose, whose blog is called The Conscience of a Liberal. So it's interesting that he sees himself. He, we all have a tendency to see ourselves as these pure truth seekers. We have a lot of romance about our profession, about our, our careers, and about ourselves. And when somebody says, yeah, that's, that's a great point, but it doesn't apply to me, I, I, it's, it's hard to know what to say except to laugh. Yeah, absolutely. I think his, uh, you said it perfectly. And I, on the other hand, there are people who uh, do have this awareness. I was very impressed uh, a few years ago when I went to the European Central Bank, and I was talking with uh, one of their top-level person who was uh, – dealing with the market every day. And uh, he had this view that uh, if uh, the ECB did not intervene to save Greece, uh, there will be a disaster. And uh, so I asked him point blank, because I can be pretty obnoxious sometimes. So I asked him, sort of, a, don't you think that the fact that you deal with the market every day impacts your views? And uh, he was towards, very honest. Towards. I was impressed because he said, uh, yes, I think that uh, I'm well aware of this. I try every day to undo this bias. Whether I succeed or not remains to be seen. And uh, I think sh- sort of chapeau to this person. And that's what we should all try to do. Um, I think that, as you said, people who uh, don't even consider the possibility of being biased probably are the ones who are the most biased. Yeah, although in the case of your friend at the ECB, I think um – the real challenge there is what do you do about that if you have that awareness? And one of the things you do is you try to listen to some other voices, which is one of your points, right? You look for a little diversity. You don't just call uh, 212. You mentioned uh, uh, Hank Paulson and, and talking to his friends in the financial sector. He talked to Lloyd Blankfein 24 times, I think, in the week or two weeks before the AIG bailout. Uh, I wonder how many other people he talked to, but that's, and I, you know, my joke is they didn't talk about how their kids were doing. They probably <laughs> talked about how the world needed to be saved by making sure that AIG paid out all the money that it was, that it had promised, even though it's one of its largest clients, just coincidentally it was Goldman Sachs that Lloyd Blankfein was the chair of and that Hank Paulson was the former chair of. So one seems to me one of the lessons of awareness has to be, one of the implications of awareness has to be uh, getting a wider set of information. But the other point, it seems to me, is is to is to invoke Adam Smith's impartial spectator and not an imaginary one, as Smith invokes, but a real one. Find somebody who's not connected to the industry, who isn't always hearing that Greece has to be bailed out or the world will come to an end. 
and see what they think. And I think that's extremely hard to do for people in those positions because of the incentives. Yes, but I think this is suggesting something important also in corporate boards, that we need diversity, not so much in terms of uh, gender, also in terms of gender, but not so only in terms of gender, also in terms of uh, backgrounds, in terms of uh, view of the world, in terms of circles, and so on and so forth. Um, I always uh, tell my students that if you want to be a contrarian, you have to live in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, you cannot live in New York uh, or Connecticut and be a contrarian. Yeah, you, you got If you want to get invited to the cocktail parties that matter, you you better you better be uh, thinking like everybody else. Um, last question. Um, I was going to ask you about reactions from colleagues, but I think you've already kind of given me an idea of that. Although you're welcome to say something about. There may be a few who have said, "Wow, that's really scary." Has anybody? Does anybody like your paper? Uh, yeah, some people like the paper, but I have to say that the most uh, fascinating reaction is uh, I presented this a few years ago um, uh, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there were a group of people uh, from uh, Harvard Business School and uh, a group of uh, uh, academic economists. And these people from Harvard Business School were more like the case type. They were not like truly academic. And uh, in the in the paper, I make uh, some examples about research and some examples also about Harvard business cases where sort of capture tend to be quite uh, sort of uh, obvious. And what was interesting is the Harvard uh, HBS guys were saying, oh, uh, the case idea is completely wrong, but uh, we think that's true for the academic economists. Oh, of and of course, the academic economists were saying that they could see that for the HBS cases, but of course not for their research. Yeah, I, I think I could have predicted that, but it's it's still <laughs> depressing to find that prediction to be accurate. Um, let me close then with this. It seems to me that, I mean, these are fascinating issues. They, um, I think they're really important. But isn't the underlying problem the fact that when we say something stupid – or something that is inaccurate, it's very difficult to hold our feet to the fire because economics is very, very difficult to pin down. So I make a prediction. Say, hypothetically, I say that if we spend, oh, I don't know, $800 billion in um, increased government spending during a recession, it's going to create so many jobs. Now, that turn, turns out that prediction was wrong. Um, the it was just turned out to be wrong. But of course, there's a story to tell afterwards as to why it was wrong. It doesn't really mean I didn't understand it. I didn't really appreciate the size of this variable or whatever. And there's plenty of examples on the free market side, the most obvious being inflation. So we, some of us on the free market side predict inflation. When it doesn't happen, people, we have a story to tell. Oh, the money's tied up in the banks. Why we didn't think of that in advance, I don't know. But that we have stories to tell. Since there's always storytelling going on, it seems to me it's very difficult to hold economists accountable for what they say, and therefore these type of biases can persist. And that raises – I want you can agree or disagree with that. And then I want you to answer the tougher question, which is given that our pronouncements cannot be verified in any often real way, why are we so influential? Uh, so that's my closing question. Answer it any way you'd like, Luigi. I think that uh, the reason why we're so influential is because uh, uh, the decisions that uh, are related to us are so damn important. I think that uh, we, to some extent, underinvest in study economics because uh, the benefit of avoiding a Great Depression is so large 
that any money, any reasonable amount of money spent in trying to in, in uh, study how to avoid it is well spent. So I think that uh, not that we necessarily spend it well, I don't want to sort of be self-serving here, but I think that the, the stakes are incredibly high. And so it's, it's a bit like uh, why a lot of uh, um, uh, chartists in Wall Street are so influential is because you can make so much money if you have any predictive power in Wall Street that uh, even if people don't, people try. So I think that that's the... That's the Simple uh, answer uh, to the second question. To the first question, um, what can uh, uh, can I say? I don't know. Uh, I think that uh, in uh, in academic uh, department, when you have intense family discussions, uh, you can tell when people are sort of uh, without a good argument or not. I think that uh, there is not enough scrutiny in the public domain. Uh, there is a lot of sometimes of uh, fight, but not uh, serious scrutiny. So it's true we cannot predict things uh, with high degree of accuracy. But I think that uh, uh, if people change their view depending on what is convenient, and uh, especially in issues that have uh, more to do with uh, microeconomics than macro. Um, I think we can tell things apart much better. My guest today has been Luigi Singales. Luigi, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.